Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is provided in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Foundation Fund, Merit Medical, AARP Utah, and by contributions to PBS Utah from listeners like you. Thank you. Additional support for the Hinckley Report comes from State Street. I'm Sean Higgins, co-host of KUER's State Street Podcast. We're here to help you make sense of Utah politics and what's at stake for you. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of The Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Heidi Hatch, anchor with KUTV2 News. Chris Blake, partner with RRJ Consulting and Kate Bradshaw, member of the Bountiful City Council. So glad to have you all with us this evening. This is one week left until the legislative session ends and a lot of bills are coming to a conclusion. Still some big bills on the board that we'll talk about over this next week. I wanna jump right into some of those bills with you, Heidi. First one is is dealing with election laws. What's interesting, in, in 2018, the legislature decided to give ranked choice voting a try. It was a pilot project to see how Utahns would like it, how voters would like it, but Katie Hall has a bill to say we're no longer going to do that, to discontinue this pilot. I don't know why they should murder it. I don't know that it's going that well in the state. I haven't heard a lot of really great success stories where it's worked, but if you're trying it, why not let cities decide? Because no one's forcing it on them. I think the frustrating part is we saw a couple elections in 2019 and 20 where I felt like it may have been a good possibility because people were educated well on the issues when we're talking about the gubernatorial election. Uh, We had four candidates where you really knew where they stood, and I think there was people that could have ranked them out and actually done a good job with that. And then also in the Salt Lake City mayoral race, The races I've seen since then, there either have been clear choices where people knew who they were voting for and there weren't enough in the election, or there were a lot, but you didn't know much about them. So it's like, how do you rank them? Mm -hmm. Uh, Chris, we've had a couple different efforts here in 2019. Four cities tried it in 21, uh, 23 cities, and it went down to 12 cities in 2023. It's been a little bit of a mix in terms of which cities wanted to engage in it. And there's some reasons why some didn't. Yeah, I think Heidi makes a great point that it is optional and many cities have used it, many have not. There are pros and cons to that. I think I was, we were the first when I ran the state Republican Party in 2004 to use it in that convention. And I think it has some real pros. I think the big challenge that Bring Choice Voting has is it's not... Uh, really simple or intuitive to understand when you get that ballot. And it does cause some confusion. And I think that's where people have have gotten confused. And candidates and campaigns have used, have tried to make strategies out of it, right? Don't vote for, you don't have to vote for a second or third. You know, but trying to use that. And I think it adds to the confusion on a ballot when there's already so many things to vote for. I think that's its biggest challenge right now. Uh, Kate, we did see that in the Salt Lake City mayor's race in particular. You have a, a couple of names on there and uh, even uh, Aaron Mendenhall put out a statement saying, just so you know, you don't have to vote on, you don't have to rank all three of us or all four of us, whatever the number is, you can just vote for me. You're our one elected official here at the table. Talk about that too and the strategy and the preferences. You're right. And as long as we're going to have elections, 
you'll figure out a strategy to, to instruct your voters, your supporters, to try and, you know, give yourself an advantage on the ballot. And, you know, you definitely saw that in the uh, Salt Lake's mayor's race um, this last election cycle. You know, the municipal cycle is the off cycle. Um, it, it definitely has lower voter turnout than other cycles. And so I'm a little worried about anything that confuses voters. Sometimes will mean they just don't turn in their ballot. Um, my county, Davis County, none of the cities have adopted it, um, in part because we have a lot of at-large districts, um, and it doesn't, you know, necessarily work well in those formats. Um, I do think, you know, we've given municipalities this option. I'm always a fan of municipalities having more options and being able to elect in or out of that system. But I think paramount is just ensuring that voters always feel like they understand the system, we haven't confused them, and they have access to good information. And when we're sometimes half in, half out of different systems, then people get a little confused. And, and, and I don't want to see that. I want to see people be able to make very uh, clear choices at the ballot uh, so that they know they're voting for the person they really want to see serve in office. Uh, Chris, since you were involved in this beginning, I want to get, get to one of these people said was a pro uh, of doing this, and they said it increases civility. If, if you have a chance to be the number two choice, it may make you want to be better uh, about what you say and what you do. Any idea about whether or not that has become true? Are people more civil because you want to be number two instead of number three? You know, that's a great question. I think it, it is important. We see this a lot in conventions uh, where people are trying to be the number two. You know, eventually somebody's going to fall off and they want to do that. I think it works a little bit differently in the, the broader campaign where you're not speaking kind of at that retail level. And so where it's a larger level, it probably doesn't have the same effect. Uh, to answer your question, no, I don't think that it creates greater civility. Uh, it has that potential, and I think that we've seen op places where that has worked. But I think at a larger level, no, that's not a something that's resulting from ranked choice voting. Uh, while you're talking about that, Chris, there's one other very interesting bill dealing with what I think is going to be the topic of the future, artificial intelligence and campaigns. Talk about what this bill is doing, because I think we should talk about this, because the parameters are, are starting to become a little more clear. Yeah, absolutely. Senator Harper and Representative Ariel DeFay have both hooked onto this issue of deep fakes, the utilization of artificial intelligence or the computing power that we see to be able to fool. Uh, I mean, that's really what a deep fake is, is to fool people into believing one thing that is not the case. We saw this in a New Hampshire primary where somebody spoofed uh, President Biden's voice to create a, an idea that he was suggesting something that wasn't the true. And we're, it has very dangerous implications. We're seeing it. Uh, we're seeing it in all facets of life. There are certainly positive and great opportunities that AI can do, but some real negatives one. What Representative Senator Harper's bill does is it uh, creates a criminal penalty uh, if you uh, do a deep fake and are trying to fool people. And then it also does something interesting. It makes sure that there's digital provenance or essentially like a watermark or a nutrition label so that people can better understand what is this picture, what is this image, and what has been, how has it been altered so that people can make the decision, should I trust this image or not, rather than somebody saying this is a good image or this is a bad image. Yeah. Heidi, talk about this from your perspective here in the news. Uh, you do such great political reporting. You follow us so closely. How are you approaching this particular issue when you're seeing commercials pop up entirely created through artificial intelligence and uh, and just wondering where the truth really is. I think that's the tricky part is because we have to be trusted in giving people information of what's true. And I've heard campaigns talking about on a local level that maybe they could save some money by using an AI family or a picture on a mailer that goes out. But that's, I think, 
already in that gray territory, but it gets drastically different when you start looking at when you have enough of somebody's voice. That's when you get those deep fakes of whether it's President Biden or President Trump and being able to use their voice to make them say things they haven't said. And we live in a wild enough world. It's hard to know truth from fiction. And I think it's going to make it harder and harder for news organizations, for people who are trying to listen and sort through this themselves as voters. So I definitely think there's got to be rules in this brave new, you know, yeah. area that we're heading into. So how we create those and if people actually follow them and adopt them, that's the hard part. So I think we're probably this is the first election where it's going to be a real issue. We'll learn lessons and probably have to regroup the next time. Yeah. What is the dialogue internally when you start seeing these commercials? I mean, is this a, a team that looks at? You know, we haven't talked a lot about that, but I know in our newsroom we've been talking a lot about AI, how it can be used well, how it can use poorly. And it's hard to have the conversation unless you've used it yourself. So I actually only barely signed up for G chat GPT and started looking at the Google system a couple weeks ago because it's hard to talk about it if you don't understand. So I'm starting to mess around with it and probably way behind where some of our teenagers and other people are. So it's definitely a learning curve. Yeah. And one of the big challenges also is, yes, we should have rules for how campaigns are conducted here in the United States, but we're going to have state actors and other people using this, whether it be Russia, China, others, or any, any even a small country or a small rogue group that wants to create or destabilize our elections, our trust in the, in the system. We've seen this over the last number of election cycles. And as we attack institutions, we, we have to be recognized that that has a detrimental impact uh, on, on our society, on our community, on the way that we operate with one another. You know, going back to that civility question, it really concerns me. Yeah. Uh, I want to get into a couple other bills, uh, and a lot of them are dealing with money. That's what we're going to see this next week. In fact, today, on Friday, our Executive Appropriations Committee will be meeting. We'll start seeing the real list of priorities, what they're going to fund. But, Kate, talk about how the legislature is approaching this. Uh, the, re the consensus revenue numbers were this. This is on top of the $28 billion budget that the base budget has already been set. $126 million of new ongoing money, $214 million of one-time money. Talk about how that is being kind of spread around, what the priorities seem to be. Yes, well, um, famously, our Senate Appropriations Chair, Jerry Stevenson, has described this as a socks and underwear yeah. budget year, um, <laughs> meaning that this is the type of year where the budget's a little bit tighter than what we've seen in, in past legislative sessions. Um, some of the money they felt like is, is maybe um, not certain, because we're budgeting to projections, and so they've moved you know, some of that off the table in order to be sure that we're really going to recognize that revenue. Uh, after they do some of what we call the big rocks, so they're they're funding our our state government at the levels to which we were at last year. They've considered you know raises for teachers and um, colas for state employees. It's not left a ton of money uh, on the table, so that's where you get the socks and underwear um, uh, theme that that uh, Senator Stevenson has has given us for this year. There are, uh, you know, just a little bit more in those revenue estimates with the with the new February numbers than we started the session with, um, so that's put a lot of more things in play. Um, you know, they definitely have significant asks in the space for homelessness that they're going to be considering uh, today when the Executive Appropriations Committee meets. They are still looking at a tax cut, um, an income tax cut as well. And then there are all of the bills that have appropriations attached to them and all of the RFAs that were presented earlier in the session that are still in there vying. So these, this last week of the session is 
is that time where everyone's in there fighting for a pair of socks. Yes, they, they are indeed. Uh, one, one of those big rocks that you talked about, Chris, is, this, is the WPU, it's education funding. Uh, talk about how that relates to income tax, because uh, I want to get into this idea of whether or not they're going to cut to income tax here in this session as well. Talk about how that works, given your vantage point, having worked on these budgets in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it, this is a key item. There's a couple reasons where it has some consequences. One is there's a constitutional amendment this year to uh, decouple income tax to be used only exclusively for public hire and then certain health and human service needs. So give the legislature more flexibility in terms of how they budget and appropriate. And so I think education is going to be looking very closely at what is that WPU number. Uh, the legislature has set up some systems to make sure that the growth, so, sort of those things that Kate was talking about, are funded. And they've done a great job. They've got a huge amount of money in the economic or ed education stabilization fund. But I think uh, education is looking to say, are you going to, to put enough money towards the WPU? And I think from what I'm hearing that they will increase that. But I think there will also be some increases to the Utah Fits All uh, scholarship uh, to, to copy that and say, you know, we want to see education grow, develop, have more options, and see more money in that space uh, in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is connected to the income tax, Heidi. And Senator Chris Wilson has at Senate Bill 69 uh, an idea here to reduce the state income tax. It will go from 4.65% to 4.55%. This is about $170 million yeah. uh, in total. It sounds like a lot of money. I was doing the math, and I'm not a mathematician, but it seems to me that a family, let's say you make $50,000, is going to save about $50 a year, $100,000, about $100. So when it comes down to it, we could all use an extra little bit of money, whether it's filling up your gas tank or grocery. So it looks good to cut that, but it's probably not going to make a significant difference to families at home. I think a lot of people would like to get to a point where we're a state where you don't have income tax, but that takes a lot of shifting and moving money around as we were just talking about, you know, there's different places it goes. And so then you have to figure out where it's going to come from and how it works. So yes, it would give us a tax cut, but probably not as big a tax cut as I think a lot of people are hoping for at home right now. They're still feeling that bite of inflation. Okay. Watch this one closely. Uh, money is a big topic here. And, and Kate, I want to get into one big one uh, for the state of Utah because it's on the agenda today. Baseball, Major <laughs> League Baseball in the state of Utah. Talk about what's happening right now, because there is a proposal on the table. This is uh, uh, Representative Ryan Wilcox, uh, House Bill 562. They call it the Utah Fair Park Area Investment and Restoration District. Yes, so that very long name we've shortened to just being the baseball oh, yes. bill up at the state capitol. And it is the vehicle and the mechanism that they are considering to turn the power district, um, the area along North Temple in Salt Lake City where uh, Rocky Mountain Power has their offices and where the Gatsby plant used to be, or currently is, but may no longer be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and turning that into um, a mixed development um, that will hopefully include a baseball stadium. Um, the, you know, the site uh, needs obviously some changes and improvements from its, its prior role as a home of a, a coal-fired power plant. Um, and so this is being viewed as, as, a, as a significant investment, in, potentially in Salt Lake City's west side, that would bring baseball. Um, I hope we get to our thoughts for team names. I have some, um, in case anyone would like to pick my brain on that. Uh, in it? It does. <laughs> I, I have added the double Z, uh, respecting our, our Utah tradition. Uh, the baseball stadium, though, it does have some interesting components. The state is proposing to use an authority model, mm -hmm. similar to what they've done with MIDA, the Inland Port, um, Utah Lake, Point of the Mountain. And, um, you know, that, that is an interesting tool. Uh, they're also looking at a variety of different uh, tax elements in order to gain the funding necessary to um, 
to do that development. And today, we, you know, the, the bill is moving through committee. Um, there's a lot of excitement. I think there's still a lot of um, discussions taking place between uh, both the city, the Larry H. Miller team, and um, the sponsors of the bill to make sure that you find that that right mix so that you're able to, uh, you know, bring something that is really trans transformational for uh, Salt Lake City, um, but also is is thoughtful about you know using public dollars and and you know using different types of authorities to create that opportunity. Well, so, another another big impact and people that are involved in that discussion include the hotels. They're looking at a TRT tax, a transient room tax, to to help fund that rental car tax uh, to raise that. And so there are other, and. and and tourism groups in general, right? They're concerned. They feel like they they do have legitimate needs and concerns within their county, even within Salt Lake County. Things that they want to see in terms of also finding ways to increase tourism, conventions, and, and other things that are going on in the state. And so there's different there's different facets that need to be considered and included that the sponsors, leadership are looking at. And how can we bridge this gap uh, to help other people be winners and feel comfortable with the, the decision to move forward? But as somebody who attended West High. And as it knows that corridor there in, in uh, the North Temple corridor well, I love to see what is the potential that can happen there with the Jordan River, uh, with that entire space. I mean, there's just such great opportunity. We've run transit to tracks down North Temple. There's so much opportunity in that area, and I'm excited to see us take more advantage mm -hmm. of it. Heidi, before we leave yeah. this one, because Chris brought out this point about the transient room tax. This is a tax in the hotel rooms, and one of the proposals is you raise that from 0.32%, which is where it is now, to 1.92%. Yeah. What's interesting is like the governor coming out saying, well, this is mostly outside people from outside the state that are paying this this, this increased tax, so yeah. they're helping to pay for it. How is that going over? You know, with what, what you're hearing. Well, I think the interesting thing is is that I think there's been a lot of work going on behind the scenes that most of us haven't been privy to watching, and so it seems like all of this is happening at lightning speed. Obviously, when you read into it, there's been a lot of work and that's gone into the details. So, oftentimes uh, when you see that hotel tax, it's not fun for people who are visiting. But when you look at states like Florida, a lot of their taxes come from people who are visiting and they're driving on the roads where they have to pay the toll to get through uh, to go to Disney World or they stay at those hotels and they're funding a lot of the tax base. So it's an interesting way to go about it. They're doing that um, for NHL, but when you look at the flip side, they're looking at raising the tax that we all pay when you shop downtown or if you work downtown or if you live in Salt Lake City, raising that by a half um, a percent. So they're looking at different ways of doing it. The interesting thing is the Salt Lake City mayors behind it. We uh, did a poll on KUTV2 News yesterday, which is not scientific, but people weighing in, and they were worried about raising that tax when they're mm -hmm. buying things in Salt Lake City just a little bit. So it definitely, I think, has people at home thinking, is this going to cost me more money? How is this going to work? But when you look at the benefits, I mean, huge things could come from that. Mm -hmm. Half a penny. Yeah, some people are still talking about this. Heidi mentioned, Chris, uh, hockey is the next thing. So if you land a baseball team here, uh, this next bill, this is uh, Senator Dan McKay, Senate Bill 272, the Capital City Reinvestment Zone Amendments, which is intended to create this entertainment district, the zone, and the hope is to get a hockey stadium there. Yeah, I think there's great opportunity there, right in the heart of Salt Lake City, to do some things. And uh, the legislature has expressed an interest in making sure that both the Jazz and an NHL team are located in downtown Salt Lake and make sure that that area remains robust and continues to grow and thrive. Uh, I thought both Senator McKay and Mayor Mendenhall yesterday in the presentation on this bill did a fantastic job. And one of the points that Senator McKay made, and I think this translates both for baseball, for NHL, but also for the Olympics, is this draw 
draws a community together. And we should look at these uh, facilities and these as assets that help pull us together. And so I think that's an important component of any of these types of things. I mean, sports isn't the only thing. It's, it's arts, it's tourism, it's hiking trails. I mean, these things that contribute to our quality of life are super important. And I think they made a really persuasive case yesterday about how this can benefit us as a community and pull us together. I think that's a really interesting point, Chris, because, you know, someone that, that lives in and represents a suburb of Salt Lake, um, you know, the capital city is important to all of us, right? It's, it, it draws us together. It, 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 it's important to our entire Wasatch Front region in the state. And the way that these projects could line up and connect um, the theater district, City Creek Mall, a sports and entertainment district, and then tie into a baseball stadium um, would truly set up Salt Lake to have you know, a very interesting and, and, and cool package that I think would benefit all of the uh, surrounding uh, communities and would you know, elevate our capital city and, and therefore elevate our state. So I think these are some really cool transformational projects um, and they have you know, a week to finish all those behind the scene details to make sure that um, you're finding a funding package that, is, that recognizes that um, you know, there are costs and, and we're going to fund those costs by bringing them from um, a, a variety of tax sources. Mm -hmm. We'll watch this. Both came out this week, both those bills, so we'll see what happens. It's got five days to do it. Uh, one of the interesting uh, stories I want to follow up on here, uh, because we, we talked about on the Hinkley Report, Heidi, is about the Attorney General. When we started the session, there was a lot of talk about whether or not legislation would come saying this should be an appointed position or not. Those bills have changed a bit. Now we're down to what's called Attorney General Amendments. Uh, this is uh, Andrew Stoddard, uh, Representative Andrew Stoddard, that essentially is just doing one thing, is the Attorney Attorney General can no longer have outside work. Yeah, the interesting thing is, is I can't figure out if this is just a bill to send a message and say, naughty, naughty, don't do this anymore, or if there's some actual teeth. But we've seen three administrations with attorneys general where we've had issues or uh, problems surrounding it. And the question is, will these uh, changes that they're looking for actually have teeth and make it so that there aren't problems? Or do the problems exist because you can always get around the rules a little bit or say, I'm going to look at this or not look at this? A lot of the things that happen that go wrong are things that sort of skirt the rules and laws that we deal with. Mm -hmm. Is this a sign on this bill that they're kind of let, gonna, going to let this one go now? You know, I, I'm with Heidi. I originally thought that this was more of a message bill, particularly with some of the uncertainty that surrounded A.G. Reyes. But I, I think the way that it's moving, there is absolutely a chance that they're going to pass this and send a message. It, it's not as black and white, I think, always as, as people think seem to think. Um, you know, elect, being elect official is hard. A lot of people give up that opportunity, make sacrifices to do it. And so should they, ha what sort of opportunities should they have outside of that? Is it inappropriate for them to make money in other ways? And so that that's always a tricky issue with elect officials. I'm actually sympathetic on that, finding the right balance. And I know that uh, Representative Stoddard and Senator McKell are working hard to try to find the right balance to understand both of those sides on that issue. You know, as someone who is in a part-time elected role, I have a, I have a day job. Um, uh, and my city council role is, is something that is a part-time uh, thing that I do. Um, it takes up a lot of nights and, and weekends in particular. Um, but it's something as an elected official, when you are putting yourself out there to the public, you have to be very conscious of, of what your uh, other outside 
you know, employment is, if you have a, a day job and a part-time role. And then if you're in a full-time role, I think the expectation from voters, though, is that that is the job you do. And it is the most important job you do. And that you conduct yourself with, with integrity and you don't generate conflicts for that office. And that you take that job very seriously. Yeah. And I think that because of the, of the, you know, multiple cycles in a row of people in that office, uh, you know, having um, conflicts that they brought into the office from these outside roles, it's, it's probably appropriate for the legislature to say, um, you know, this role and the fact that you are our, our top cop and our, our top legal defender, you need to adhere strictly to make sure you don't bring conflicts into this office. I want to say, I think one thing is clear, though, with all that has happened in that office over the last couple of years, we're not ever going to have an appointed attorney general because I don't know what could happen that would then change the mind. I mean, we, we there's been that discussion both after the John Swallowmark shirtless stuff and again here. And um, taking that away from voters, I understand that's a difficult issue. I think there are pros to having an appointed attorney general. There are certainly cons. We've seen that on the federal level, but I think it's pretty clear we're not getting rid of an elected attorney general. And so, you know, they might put more guardrails, but that's where we're going to keep it. Okay. One more bill yeah. to talk about. Oh, go ahead, Heidi. Nothing. I was just going to say the interesting thing with appointing is I think it was Herbert who appointed A.G. Reyes. He was then elected, but at least if you're elected, you have a chance as the people to say, we want someone else out. If you're appointed, you know, where, where do you have that ability to get rid of them if that one person decides they want you there, you know? Mm -hmm. So Great. everyone has an agenda. Politics. <laughs> uh, really quick before we leave this, because you're our resident expert, Kate, are we going to have any alcohol bills? There is an alcohol bill this year, and it will actually be discussed today. Um, and we'll have uh, a, you know, a series of changes that are going to come through. Probably the most significant change that's in this year's alcohol bill is a change to the ratios for alcohol licenses for bars and restaurants. Um, we have a population quota system that says how many bars and restaurant licenses there, there can be based on the population of the state of Utah. So as you grow, you slowly gain more licenses. Um, there has been, if, if you're a, a watcher of the Department of Alcohol uh, uh, Beverage Services Commission, a, there's a waiting list of people who are seeking licenses in order to open up new bars and restaurants. And um, it's a, been a, an incredible challenge um, from an economic development standpoint. And so the most significant change is they are lowering that ratio from um, 10,200 people to about 7,200 people um, for the bar licenses and then a corresponding ratio in the restaurant license. They are doing it over a series of years. It is a highly negotiated uh, uh, number that is in there. And there are also some other concerns. Um, considerations in that bill. There is a um, an increase on beer and wine and spirits, um, and uh, some of it will fund compliance offices officers, but some will also just, quite frankly, flow to the general fund for other uses. Um, anyway, there's always a whole bunch of interesting things because all alcohol policy in Utah is wrapped up to in one single bill. Yeah, I, just the, the last couple of words on that one, Heidi, because uh, you have lots of groups up there on the on the hill. Some of them really much talking about the uh, the tra travel tourism components of this very bill. You know what? I am going to have to step aside on this one because I am not very educated on it. So I'm just going to have to listen to the other wise people <laughs> in the room on this. Yeah, well, we seem to have these every legislative yes. session back from when you were in the in the House, right, yeah. Chris? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for your insights this evening on these very important bills. More to come. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.